Good morning. I'm Kathy Gurley, and today we will discuss humility in the book of James in a passage from Isaiah and a passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'd like to share a prayer with you today from a collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. So will you please pray with me? My Father, at Calvary, their grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy Son, made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for me. There, infinite punishment was due, and infinite punishment was endured. There, Christ endured all anguish, that I might be all joy, trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best, stripped, that I might be clothed, wounded, that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, endured darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He bore a thorny crown that I might receive a glory diadem, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might forever live. O oh, Father, who spared not thine own son, that, thy might spite, that thou might spare me. Help me that my every breath might be ecstatic praise as I see sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portal open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. In the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, amen. I am either the best or the worst person to give this talk today on humility. The worst, because I need to learn this more than any of you here in this room. I was raised to be proud and boastful and repeatedly taught that I was better than everyone else, even though I knew for sure that was not true. On the other hand, I am perhaps the very best person to be here today. I know how much God hates pride. It is absolutely the worst sin from his perspective. As a friend of mine says, we cannot simultaneously be convinced that we are the most wonderful person we know and that Jesus is the most wonderful person that we know. So as I have an enormous amount of room for growth in this area, may we learn together today as we study these passages. Our outline shows where we are headed today. Okay. Um, your handout that you received follows our outline. We're going to do humility in the book of James, then in um, the passage to Isaiah, and then finally in Philippians. So on your outline, I have all the scripture references and the websites. So what does humility look like for James? James 4, 6 sums it all up for us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We will take a short tour through the book of James, chapter by chapter, looking at specific verses to see what we can learn about James' ideas of humility. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God. The Greek word for servant here is doulos, a slave, the lowest of the low, the scum, the ones who washed others' feet. In the book of Acts, Paul commends James as a pillar of the church, but James himself claims no authority or rank, no relation even to Jesus as his brother, only that Jesus is his Lord and James is his slave. 
Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, we must humble ourselves in order to realize and accept what we lack. We don't have wisdom. That humbles us. And James says, let him ask the giving God. This is God's nature, to give and to give generously without fault or reproach. So this is an additional humbling aspect that we must have before God, trusting that this truly is his character, that he doesn't demand payback from us, that he isn't looking for faults in us to judge us unworthy. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The lowly, the poor, have an exalted position in God's eyes. They often humbly recognize when the rich do not that they are desperate, destitute and desperately need God. Verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Rich people can be prone to pride and self-sufficiency. They must remember that life is fleeting and beyond their control. The low position of the rich is the same as the poor man. We must all bow humbly before Christ our Savior to receive his grace and mercy. Verse 11, so also will the rich man fade away. The rich man faces the same end, death, and the same eternal future as everyone else. He can either trust in his riches or he can humble himself and trust in the Lord first and foremost, knowing that his riches, like the flower of the grass, will fade away and have no value in eternity. Verse 21, receive with meekness or humility the implanted word. James later calls this the word of truth, which is the good news of God's mercy and grace in Jesus. This implanted word is able to save. It has the power to give life. It's, by the, it's the word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that saves lives, changes hearts, breaks the power of sin, gives a desire for God and his ways and truths, and changes our behaviors, not by anything we do on our own power. And that, of course, is the humbling part. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious, we all can probably think of people who gave great semblances of religiosity but later were exposed as frauds. In their pride, they were putting on a deceptive show. But those of us who belong to the Lord will humbly display it by our deeds of love. James goes on to give the true tests, the tests of true religion. Remember, caring for the poor, restraining our tongues, and becoming un keeping ourselves unstained from the world. We are ready to humbly hear the gospel only when we realize that we can never pass these tests of religion on our own. Chapter 2. Verse 1 tells us, show no partiality. This requires humility because we realize that we are at the same level before God as the poor man. We have no right to judge. Before we knew God, we were in an even worse state. Then we were in spiritual poverty. I'm going to give you a statistic from um, each of two distinct websites. On Global Rich List, we find that an annual income of $10,000 puts you in the richest 16% of people in the world. And from Statistic Brain, we learned that half of the world's people live on the equivalent of less than $2.50 a day. That is incredibly humbling to me. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. When we show partiality, we have elevated ourselves to an imaginary height. James turns our proud judgmental hearts to the royal law, humbly loving our poor neighbors as ourselves. As the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Helping the poor can be rewarding, but it can also be messy, frustrating. It can be incredibly humbling. But James tells us that if we are part of God's family and we don't care for our brothers within that family, our faith is a failure. Chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers. Notice that James includes himself among those who teach. Teachers above all bear a huge responsibility to be humble because they, we, are generally vulnerable to failures in speech. Verse 5, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Boasting is the usual sin of the tongue. This part of our body most serves our pride, but a true understanding of God's grace will humble us. Verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. James says no man can tame the tongue, but he doesn't say no one can. When it is tamed, it is the grace of God. It would be good to tame the tongue, James says we cannot, though. Therefore, we must turn elsewhere for help. Only God himself can tame our tongue as we humble ourselves before the Lord and obey his voice. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James has two kinds of wisdom, worldly and heavenly. Wisdom from above is given by God and demands humility in order to submit to it. The wisdom that comes from God humbly recognizes that whatever we have or know comes from him alone, not anything of ourselves. And verse 14, do not boast. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? We need humility here to recognize that pride is not the way of godly wisdom, that we cannot gain humility on our own and to ask for God's mercy to us. Chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our lack of care for the poor, our lack of control of our tongue, our lack of desire for the kingdom of God, and instead our desire for the world, these all have one solution, God's grace. If we humble ourselves in genuine repentance, God promises to forgive us, give us grace, lift us up, and exalt us with Jesus. Verse 7, submit to God. To, to submit means to arrange under. This is an active, not a passive thing. Obedience is an element of that submission. If we submit to God in obedience, then we have humbled ourselves. Verse 8, draw near to God. We cannot draw near and submit without a sense of humility that we lack something and we need God's help. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. If we confess that we cannot control our tongues or live a godly life before the Lord or be wise on our own, then God will lift us up. God does indeed humble the proud. I have received that humbling many times. But here James says it's our responsibility to humble ourselves. If we look to God's standards and see how short we fall, then it's easier to humble ourselves. This is the gospel of James. We acknowledge our inability, our inadequacy, call on him. He will pour out his grace and lift us up. Verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? Judging others is prideful, so we need humility. We put ourselves in the position of God when we judge, believing ourselves to be better than others. This is one of the things that the world hates about us as Christians. Often what they see is judgment rather than God's precious grace. God is the appropriate person to judge, not us. Verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
You are a mist that vanishes. Here, James shows us how we arrogantly make our plans without God, yet we're a tiny speck, one of out of over six billion on the earth today. God is sovereign, and we are not. We may think we have all our ducks in a row, our investment portfolios, our retirement, our job, our position in the church, and poof, it can all be changed in a heartbeat. We vanish in a moment, forgetting our weakness and our desperate need for humble dependence on God. Verse 15, if the Lord wills. Now here is one place where we can all agree with the Muslims. Inshallah, or inshallah, is the Arabic language expression for God willing, or if God wills. And this is absolutely correct. We must humbly surrender our plans, our wills, our lives to God. Jesus said to his father, your will be done, and he was God himself. How much more do we need to humble ourselves before God? Inshallah. Verse 16, you boast in your arrogance. This totally forgets God. Planning is good, but arrogance contradicts humility. We need to submit our plans to God, admit we need his help and blessing, humble ourselves, and recognize that any good that comes is only because of his grace to us. And finally, in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, your riches have rotted, your gold and silver have rusted. Here, we've used wealth to oppose the poor and to indulge ourselves. These are the most serious offenses, most opposed to humility. Now, we all know that silver and gold don't really rust, but James is making a point. Don't hoard our riches, but rather humbly share them with the poor. Dan Doriani says, whenever we forget the gospel of God's love and grace, the undertow of the world's values threatens to sweep us away. Verse 14, is anyone sick? Call for the elders. This requires humility to admit illness, to bring in elders, to humble ourselves before them. This shows our feebleness. Verse 15, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That sins thing, not wanting people to find out how really bad we really are, that's terribly humbling. The sick person has to be the one to take the initiative to call the elders, and that takes humility. And finally, verse 16, confess your sins one to another. This, of course, takes a lot of humility, and we all desperately need each other in the body to be able to do this. So now, let's take a look at our passages for today in their biblical context. This timeline shows the cross of Jesus in the middle. I guess it doesn't show on there. Um, as the zero point, with the section to the left extending backwards, what we call the Old Testament, you see that our passage from Isaiah falls in that section about 740 B.C., before Christ. Then the New Testament period extends forward from Christ with our book of James around 42 or so A.D., and the Philippians passage maybe 20 years later. So we're living in that section to the right. So what were these authors writing for and about? Isaiah is written as a prophetic warning to God's people to return to complete trust in him rather than in foreign nations and to return to their role as God's light to the nations. Isaiah vividly portrays the people's indifference to injustice, disregard for the poor, and infatuation with the affluence of the world. Sounds like James, doesn't it? Isaiah's solution is God's servant who will appear to put 
all things right. This section for today in Isaiah is the fourth and final of what are called the servant songs, passages telling of this special servant of the Lord who is manifest perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians is a letter from the Apostle Paul written while he was in jail to Christian friends in the city of Philippi. Amazingly, he focuses on joy, especially joy in the gospel, to focus on the Lord rather than on circumstances. He instructs these believers to look at Jesus and what he encountered here on earth. If Jesus, as God himself, displayed such incredible humility in his circumstances, surely with his help we can as well. We see the way the Father exalted him, and this gives us courage as we look forward to our eternal inheritance in Christ. Now let's look at our Isaiah passage. It divides naturally into five sections of three verses each. So the first, exaltation and humiliation. Nothing attractive in the second section. The third is substitution, then complete submission, and finally God's purposes prevail. So I'm going to read this passage from the ESV Bible. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand." Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We'll begin with the three verses at the end of Isaiah chapter 52. There's almost universal agreement among commentators that 
Isaiah chapter 53 should actually begin with these last three verses at the end of chapter 52. We have extreme highs and extreme lows in this section. You may remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I remember Mel Gibson, the director, saying, responding to criticism of the violence in the movie. But he said that actually he did not think that they even went far enough with the brutality to Jesus. So I went online and looked at the images from the movie. And sure enough, despite the torture depicted in them, in every case, the body of Jesus was still recognizable as a human. But listen to this paraphrase from the message. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face disfigured past recognition. And once again, Isaiah's words from the ESV describing God's servant in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Our Muslim friends, our African Muslim friends, celebrate a festival called Tabaski. They must kill a lamb and they tell us that the knife must be very sharp. That is so that it will cause little suffering for the lamb. But for Jesus, the lamb of God, there is no such compassion. He is beaten beyond recognition and then crucified. The sprinkling of the nations reminds of the priest's actions described in Leviticus 4. When offerings of animals were being made for the sins of the people, the priest had to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle it before the Lord in front of the veil in the tabernacle. So here, the blood of Jesus, as the perfect lamb sacrificed before God for the sins of the world, is sprinkled over peoples of many nations, purifying them for the Father as his own people. Now we will look at the second section, the first three verses in Isaiah 53. They show us that there was nothing in Jesus that would attract people to him. He was not like King Saul, taller and more handsome than any other, nor as King David, handsome with beautiful eyes. Isaiah describes God's servant. No form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces, despised, and we esteemed him not. No one takes positive notice of God's servant. In the third section, verses 4 through 6, we learn that from the vantage point of people looking at this servant, they saw him as stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. They thought he was being punished by God. The afflictions that the servant suffered were apparently because he deserved them. He had committed some atrocious transgression of God's law. We will come back to this section in a few minutes. The fourth section, verses 7 through 9, depicts a victim who does nothing to defend himself. The complete submission of Jesus. Oppressed, afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. Taken away by oppression and judgment. Cut off out of the land of the living. Made his grave with the wicked. We see here where Peter may have gotten his inspiration when he wrote about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Then, in the final section, the last three verses, God's purposes prevail. We see that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to death, grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Actually, that was exactly true. Jesus did deserve to be, suffer, to be crushed by God, and to be put to death. He deserved to have no earthly descendants. He deserved every punishment that he received. But he was completely innocent. How and why is this possible? The central section, substitution, verses 4 through 6, are the heart of this passage. In Mark's gospel, we learn that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we can clearly see this theme of substitution. The exchange is between Jesus, who is crushed, and us, the people whom he ransoms. The great exchange. For those of you who are listening, I hope you're able to see the handout that depicts these screens we are going to view here. Jesus is represented... Oh, this isn't working, is it? No. Jesus is represented by the box on the left, blood red, because that is how he redeems us from sin, by his blood. We are represented by the box on the right, blackened with sin, filled with our griefs and sorrows, sins, iniquities, and transgressions. This is an incredible demonstration of God's gospel of grace. Our sins, black as can be, are transferred to Jesus, and in return, we receive all the goodness and righteousness of Jesus. Let's take a look at this through the words of Isaiah. Jesus has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. He bore the sin of many, that's many of us. The Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah tells us that Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt, our guilt. For us, ultimately, all of this would eventually lead to our eternal death. But instead, instead, each one of these offenses is taken from us by Jesus, and he bears the wrath of God and complete punishment for them. So watch the screen. Our griefs, is if you look carefully at the red, I hope you can see it. Our sorrows, our transgressions, our sins, our iniquities, our guilt, and ultimately our death. Each of these is transferred from us to Jesus. Now that is wonderful, but we are not yet arrived at where we need to be. At this point, we are actually just like Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned. Our evil is atoned for, but what is to prevent us from going back, traveling back on that road, becoming in bondage to sin once again? In this exchange, we have the superbly incredible, amazingly free, unthinkable plan of God that gives Jesus righteousness to us. Here it is. We see that from Jesus to us, with his wounds, we are healed. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. 
and this righteous servant of God, Jesus, makes many to be accounted righteous. Healed with peace in the righteousness of Jesus. This is how God views all of those who belong to Jesus, his son. The hymn of Rock of Ages has this refrain, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. The water represents forgiveness from our sins and the blood represents purification from the power of sin over us. I cannot, and I doubt that you could either, no, I know that you could not, find any other action on the part of anyone else in all of history that would demonstrate humility more excellently than this exchange that Jesus, the God of the universe, has performed for the sake of us, his rebellious creatures. Now, all of this occurred because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is hard to think about, that God purposely planned and executed this incredible torture of Jesus, forsaking his very own son, all because of us, and in addition, that Jesus willingly submitted himself to an excruciating and humiliating death and all the wrath of God upon him for our sakes, our freedom, and eternal life. Isaiah 53, more than any other passage I can think of in the Bible, depicts the complete replacement of our sins by God's forgiveness, peace, and love, and their transfer to Jesus, who bore God's wrath for us and gave us his righteousness. The Apostle Paul tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dwight L. Moody, when asked what his personal creed was, replied, it is found completely in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. There is something else I want to show you from this passage. Much of the section is written in past tense, was despised, carried our sorrows, crushed for our iniquities, and so on. Some of it's in future tense. He shall see his offering, shall prolong his days, shall make many to be accounted righteous. A few phrases are in the present. Listen to the very last two phrases in the segment. He bore the sin of many, now that's past tense, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He makes intercession for the transgressors, present tense. Jesus is continually interceding for us before his Father. Now, this is the ESV, which is a recent translation, and most all of the older translations use the past tense. But Matthew Poole, a 7th century Bible commentator, explains that this way. In way of petition, this word intercedeth is constantly used. He, Jesus, prayed upon earth for all sinners, particularly those that crucified him, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in heaven, he still intercedeth for them, not by a humble petition, but by a legal demand of those good things which he purchased for his own people by the sacrifice of himself, which, although past, he continually represents to his Father as if it were present." We see this borne out in Hebrews 7. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Romans 8, 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And in Hebrews 9, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hallelujah. Okay, finally, we're going to look at Philippians 2. This is how the ESV states it. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. <laughs> now, Paul begins by stating the indicative truth that we know about Jesus. If there's any encouragement in Christ, oh, yes, absolutely there is. If there's any comfort from his love, oh, for certain. Knowing that we are loved perfectly, that is incredibly comforting. And participation in his spirit, which Jesus has given to us, so helpful when we do remember that we have his spirit to help us and guide us. Any affection and sympathy from Jesus? Absolutely. He waits on high to offer these to us. So then, after stating these truths, then Paul asks his readers to bring him joy by being unified, the same mind, the same love, in full accord and with one mind. Now, how can they do this? Think of how unity is achieved in a family, in the body of Christ, in any group or organization. Each person must give up their own pet causes, their individual goals, in favor of the larger mission of the group. Put ourselves aside, our ambitions aside, having a lowly mindset. Look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. What is there to dispute about when we have considered others more significant than ourselves? Unity in any group requires humility. And then consider Jesus. He was is God himself. He abandoned all privilege, esteem, and homage, and emptied himself of all distinction to become the lowest of the low. Our text tells us that he, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, wasn't it enough for Jesus to be humbled by leaving his throne in heaven and becoming a lowly baby in a cow's feeding trough? For Jesus, humbling meant obedience. When Jesus says we need to deny ourselves, he doesn't mean deny our desires. He means deny ourselves. Surrender our complete self to him and his purposes for our life. Old Testament scripture tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience to Jesus, putting ourselves at his disposal, listening to his spirit, and putting all of ourselves aside that is true humility.
So what is there for us today? To be truly humble, we must understand this incredible grace that Jesus has poured out upon us. It's not humbling if you follow rules in a legalistic way, but it is humbling to free fall into the arms of Christ in complete and total dependence upon him and none upon ourselves. The safest place for us to be is in complete abandonment to Jesus and to receive the grace that he has lavished upon us. God is holy, holy, holy. He justifies us rebellious sinners, letting us get off completely free when we are so obviously guilt-ridden. That is why he punished Jesus for us who deserve death. We are judged, but only through Jesus' blood. This is the truly astounding grace of God. Lavish loving kindness, complete forgiveness, overwhelming compassion, comfort, and love. He continuously waits for us to come to him. He watches for us, delights in welcoming us to himself. We who trust in Jesus are now one in Christ. He is our savior, our elder brother. We are as loved by God, the apostle John tells us, as he loves Jesus. Seek the Lord, call on him. He is waiting for you, his precious child. After I pray, please remain seated as we ponder the words of our final song. Father God, we cannot even begin to wrap our minds around your incredible grace that you have poured out by giving your amazing son Jesus to us as a substitute for everything that we deserved. Father, we are not our own. We were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. May we cling to him, stand firm in your word, and just Make your name known that you may be the one who is truly glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Redeemer. Amen.